Snap Wilson, quarterback draw on third and 15. 20, 15, 10. Oh, he's going to go. Five touchdown Cougars. Down the lane, back to Yo. Yo on the arc, shoots a three and scores it. Yoli Childs for three. To right, putting a shot on goal. It is a goal for Elise Blake. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. And now, here's Greg Rubel. Hello once again, Cougar Nation. Welcome inside Studio 2, inside the BYU Broadcasting Building in Provo, Utah. For tonight's edition of Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel, 60 minutes of Cougar conversations with some of the most interesting BYU sports personalities spanning decades of Cougar sports. Glad to have you with us live this evening on BYU Radio. We are heard coast-to-coast on Sirius XM 143 and in northern Utah on 107.9 FM and 89.1 FM HD2. We are streaming live online at byuradio.org and on the BYU Radio app. For on-demand listening, go to our Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel podcast and at byuradio.org where you can find our show archives on the show's page. On tonight's program, a former Utah running Ute who's been part of the BYU basketball community for the last two decades. He joins me. He is BYU women's basketball head coach Jeff Judkins, the one-time Utah basketball star, NBA player, and longtime Ute assistant coach, is entering his 18th season as the head coach of the BYU women's hoops squad. Following Coach Judkins, it's our Catching Up with the Cougars segment brought to you by BYU alumni. And tonight, we are catching up with former BYU punter and place kicker, member of the 1984 National Championship team, and 18-season NFL veteran Lee Johnson as he chats with me here in studio, too. We start tonight, though, with a Salt Lake City native who played his high school hoops very close to the University of Utah and ended up choosing the U as his college hoops home. Jeff Judkins helped the Utes back to the NCAA tournament in the mid-'70s, then became an NBA draft pick of the Boston Celtics in the late-'70s after an NBA career that included stints with three other NBA teams. Juddy was soon into coaching at his alma mater and helped the running Utes to some of their best-ever seasons, including an appearance in the national championship game of 1998. After deciding to leave Rick Majerus' staff, Judkins found a new home at BYU, first as a joint staffer with the men's and women's programs before taking over as the women's hoops head coach in 2001. His 2018-19 team opening the regular season Friday night at the Marriott Center on BYU TV. And it is a pleasure to welcome Coach Jeff Judkins into Studio 2, where he joins me behind the mic. It's nice to be here, Greg. You attended Highland High School in Salt Lake City back in the day, and I've always presumed that you were a Utah man who gave no thought to BYU when it came time to choose a college. Did BYU ever have a real shot at you? (laughs) Well, first of all, I played for a great high school coach, Larry Maxwell, and uh, he was was a different coach with recruiting. He took all the letters that came – to the players, and he stuck them in his drawer. And when the end of the year was over, your senior year, he gave you all those letters that he received. And so when he gave me those letters my senior year, I had letters from several colleges, and BYU was one of them. And uh, he really wanted me to go to BYU. That was his choice for me to go because he just felt that was a great program and the way the church and everything. And I did give BYU an opportunity. They came in my home. And uh, we visited, but I could tell as now as a coach, I know kind of the the lines and what they say. They wanted me, but they they had somebody else that they were more interested in recruiting. And to this day, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Brett Roman at that time, and maybe Brett was the guy. But um, they didn't seem that they wanted me as bad as 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 somebody else. Glenn Potter would have been the coach at this time Correct. for BYU, right? Yeah, Glenn Potter was the coach. Yeah, we had a guy, Greg Snow, who played at BYU, and he, of course, went to Highland. And and so he he kind of was a little bit involved in it. And uh, But, you know, at the time, recruiting's changed so much. It, it's more now with technology, you just know that you're more wanted or whatever. I just I never got a letter except for that one letter saying, are you interested in – at BYU and whatever, and that was it. And, uh, you know, where Utah, Coach Jerry Pym was assistant coach then, and when he got the head job, which he did after my senior year, it was, it was really kind of a no-brainer for me. Really, it came down, for me, it came down to Utah and Utah State were the two schools that I narrowed it down to. And Coach Belknap was the head coach at Utah State, and Coach Tuller and Coach Herrick were the assistant coaches, and they recruited huh. me pretty hard. 
So you played at Utah from 1974 through 1978. And when you got there, it had been a while since the Utes had played in an NCAA tournament, right? Correct. They they were struggling a little bit. The, their biggest, really, before I went there was when they went to the NIT and they ended up getting in the finals. Um, they had uh, uh, Sojourner, Mike Sojourner, and they had Tiki Burden and and Tyrone Medley and Jeff Jonas and Doug Terry. That was a great group. And um, But then I came in my freshman year, and Tiki Burden was a junior, if I remember right. And, um, man, he was a great player, but he just beat me up to a pulp every day. <laughs> and when the season got over with, he said, Jack, you're going to be a great player someday. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, they really weren't. We were all right. We weren't really what, what we were when I got there. The NCAA tournament drought ended, and I think your third season, which is the 76-77 year, your yeah. junior year. Yeah. And I want to go back earlier in that year, a year you made the tournament, but in December of that year, you guys went to Lexington. Yep. yep. Rupp Arena had just opened. Correct. It was the first year of Rupp Arena, 1976-77. They'd gone 5-0 and in their first five games. And then you guys came in and played what they called the uh, the UKIT, the UK, Correct. the Kentucky Invitational Tournament, and played in the title game. And you guys beat Kentucky by two points. Yes. And, and even though it was a new building, it was still a stunning loss yeah. for that program, stunning, right? Stunning loss. And you had 24 points in that game to lead all scorers. 10 of 16 from the field, 4 of 5 from the free throw line, uh, 7 rebounds, and you guys win by two. Yep. It was, uh, that tournament was really interesting because we played West Virginia the first night. And Bobby Huggins was on that team. And his funny thing, he t- told me that when I saw him this couple couple summers ago, that game that I elbowed him in the mouth and cut his lip and split his lip open. And I, I don't even remember that. It's, he did. It's, yeah, but he remembered it. But we played Kentucky, and they were number one in the country. And they had they had two two players that they suspended for, for that game because they broke curfew or they did something. And uh, we went in there with 23,000 people, and we got up on them, and then they tried to catch up, and they they caught us and tied the game with about 8 to 10 seconds. We ran a little play, and surprisingly, I was a decoy. And they guarded me, and they let our guard wide open, probably 10, 12-foot shot, and left him wide open. And he hit that shot, and I'm not kidding, that building went dead quiet except for the guys on our bench, and we're all yelling. And and you, you probably know, Greg, calling games, how exciting it is. And Bill Markoff was our radio, and yeah. all of a sudden you just hear him yelling out, screaming, no, no other noise. Because <laughs> the building's so quiet. Yeah, so quiet. Yeah. And uh, it was just something that I'll never forget. And, um, you know, surprisingly, a lot of Kentucky fans haven't forgot that because when I coached at Utah and we met Kentucky several times in yeah. the tournament, they kept saying to us, "Yeah, we remember when you guys beat us in Rupp Arena, the first <laughs> loss." And and I and I used to kind of rub it in on my players. I'd say, "Hey, you know, I'm the only guy that's ever beaten Kentucky in this here." But um, it was a great great experience for us. And I, I've you know I've still got the watch. You know, funny thing, they made all the watches. They engraved their names on it. They had to go change it for that. But it was just a great opportunity for us. Because they presumed Kentucky was going to win that They game. thought for sure Kentucky was going to win that no. game. So that season ends with you guys getting back to the NCAA tournament for the first time in a while. And interestingly, your games are at the Marriott Center. Correct. Correct. I've only, I only lost one game here in the Marriott Center. That was against Vegas here in the tournament. Second round. Second round. We beat them in preseason. Score was 198, if I remember right. And people got to realize there was no shot clock. There was no three-pointer. And, um, and then we got him here, and the game was a really close game. It's the first time I've ever seen Jeff Jonas miss a front end of a one-on-one. Hmm. We were up, I think, one or two, and he got fouled, and he missed the front end of a one-on-one. And um, they came down and scored, and, and we, we just – and then they fouled us again, and we missed. But it was it was a great experience. There was only one we, I, I still remember the shot I missed. We were up four points with probably four minutes, maybe a little less, and I had an eight-foot corner jumper right by the scoreboard, and I missed it. And when I missed it, it ricocheted, and the ball got tipped to Reggie Theus, and he drove in for a layup, and Buster Metheny, one of our centers, fouled him and, and fouled him out of the game. And if I hit that shot, we'd have been up six, and maybe it may have been a totally different game. 
I'm sure you thought you could have gone someplace because I think Vegas goes on and beats maybe Idaho State in the next round. Yeah, Idaho State beats UCLA here, and they beat Idaho State, and then Vegas goes in the Final Four, and Vegas had the best team. They had seven guys in that team get drafted in the top five, and then they lost to North Carolina, who four-cornered it. That's when the shot clock was, you know, mm-hmm. and they just and they end up losing, and then North Carolina lost to Marquette. That's when Al Guire won won his last game, and Rick Majerus was his assistant coach, yeah. and uh, they end up winning in nineteen seventy seven. In seventy eight, you get back to the tournament, and again, second round, right? Yeah, you know, back then there was not sixty four teams; it was thirty two teams. So we went back, and we end up playing. I think St. John's. If um, I remember right, Missouri first round. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It was Missouri. That, I think that game was double overtime. Uh, Buster Thaney had the best game of his life, and at that time, my senior year, we had on our team we had Buster Thaney, Greg Dean, uh, Michael Gray, uh, Danny Vrains, Tom Chambers. That was a real nice team. We had that year. We had five guys get drafted off that team. Um, and we beat Missouri, and then then we played Notre Dame, and Notre Dame played a box and one. Um, surprising, they played it on me, and hmm. we just we just couldn't hit enough shots to really win that game. So your career ends at Utah in 1978. NBA draft comes, and Celtics pick you in the second round. Who, yeah. was, the, who was their first round pick that year? I forget. The first pick <laughs> yeah, was yeah. some great guy named Oh Larry Bird. <laughs> Dang it. But yeah. you're the next guy they took. Yeah, they took me next. Um, the year before that, Larry and myself, we were invited to the World Games team. And um, it's always right after the Olympics, 1977. And I heard about this kid, you know, all these points he scored and everything. And so we got there, and, man, that guy was special. And we were roommates for almost nine weeks. Um, we went to Bulgaria. We went to Italy. We traveled over playing and, you know, we really became good friends. And so when the season gets over with our senior year, and he, he has one more year if he wants to stay or come out, he gets drafted six, and I get drafted 30th. And um, we kind of talked, and he wasn't sure at the time when we got drafted what he was going to do. And he decided, of course, everybody knows he stayed in and went to Indiana State. Um. But yeah, it was really in that that my my rookie year we won thirty two games, and we lost sixty. And the next year with him and our team was almost the exact same, except for the one guy. Yeah, <laughs> we won sixty two games and lost twenty. So don't kid yourself, players win games, and uh, he still probably of all the players that I've played with, he's 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 the best player I ever played with. I had Michael Smith on with me a few weeks ago, and of course, former Celtic, and, and yeah. he, he shared with me his Larry Bird story or stories that he goes to. What's a Larry Bird story that maybe encapsulates who he was? Well, you know, everybody keeps telling me he's a trash talker, and, you know, I didn't hear it that much. I mean, you know, he, he always would challenge his opponent. Um, like, he'd, he'd come to me and say, oh, watch, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a move and dunk on this guy. And I'm going, yeah, sure, and then he'd go do it. Um Hardest worker I know. Uh, so many of those great players, they just dog out everything. He was the totally opposite. He he would do just as much as anybody else. He didn't feel that he was any more special than, than anybody on the team. Um, he had a great sense of humor. People don't know that. He was a, he was a goofball. Like He always played practical jokes on everybody. Um, you know... Great, the greatest shooter that I've ever. I mean, I, I, mean, I had in that team him and Pete Maravich. I mean, Pete Maravich was my idol as a kid, and then of course John Havlicek was up there. But the three of you know Maravich and Bird and me, we'd play four horse. And remember, you probably don't remember Greg because you're too young. But they had a lot of commercials with Larry Bird and Magic or doing the seven up commercial, doing a horse game. Yeah, throwing off the backboard, yeah. nothing but net. Hey, that was yeah. that was with those two guys. We would play horse after practice for hours, and throw. And those guys would do that stuff. They'd throw it off the scoreboard and whatever. And but Larry, Larry, uh, this is probably him to a T. 
He scores 45 against Phoenix. Okay, the next night we go play the Lakers, and we get in there early, and he shows up to the gym. Our game's at 7. He shows up to the gym at 3.30 and shoots for two hours before that game, and he had 45 the night before. And I tell one of my players, and so all you young kids, players out there, everybody thinks when you're not playing well, you work harder. It's the opposite. When you're playing well, you keep working hard. And that's that's the kind of example that he set with me. But um, very simple guy, you know. Um, he drove a, drove a Ford Bronco when he was at, with Boston. He mowed his own lawn. Um, he didn't go out very much because people just harassed him to death. Like we go to a restaurant to eat after a game, and it was just, I mean, he couldn't even breathe. And people say, well, well that's great. But after a period of time, you, you do get kind of tired of that. You get where you kind of want your freedom a little bit and your space. You mentioned John Havlicek a moment ago. And there, I think there was a time you picked up the moniker Baby Hondo. Correct. When I got drafted by the Celtics, that was the, the writer, uh, Bob Ryan. And everyone probably knows him. He's on Boston Globe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a big. He called me Baby Hondo because I played very similar. I moved, shot, um, played hard. Um, you know, wasn't the most flashy player, and and that, that was a great honor I'll because say, yeah. my first game with the Celtics is when they retired his number, and so and he was one of my idols long when I was a young kid, and so to be able to to have that and be able to be part of that was something that was really awesome. You ended up with other NBA teams. It sounds like you really wished you could have stayed in Boston a long time, if not for your career. Well, what happened, the Dallas Mavericks were coming in as an expansion team that year after my contract ran out. I signed a two-year contract, and um, I went up to Red Arback, and I went up to Bill Fitch, and I said, I don't care about money. I care about being on a great team and playing in the NBA as long as I can. It's been my dream, and... Um, I'll come to Boston and don't worry about the money. I guess they didn't believe me. They thought so many people in their life just they say one thing and do the other. And so they did not protect me. They could only protect seven players. And so they protected um, the starting guys that started. And then they protected Pete Maravich. And if I remember, the other one was was uh, ML Carr. Uh, and so, of course, Dallas takes me. By doing that, I can't go back to the Celtics, and so I end up signing uh, with the Utah Jazz. If I had to do it all over again, um, I would have stayed with the. I would have gone with the Mavericks, and the reason for that is Dick Mata was the coach, yeah. and the way he his style of coaching would have been probably fit for me, and I probably would have had a better, better career with with that. Time for a short break. When we come back, my conversation with BYU women's basketball head coach Jeff Judkins continues. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Back with Coach Judkins after this. You're listening to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Welcome back to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, visiting with BYU women's basketball head coach Jeff Judkins. Before the break, uh, we were concluding Jeff's professional career, which included stints with Boston, Utah, Detroit, and Portland. When, Juddy, did you know it was time to uh, end the pro basketball phase of your life and do something different? Well, my last year with Portland, I really enjoyed it. I We had a real good team, and right at the end, uh, it might have been end of March, they came to me and said, hey, we need to pull out a guy who we've got some money tied into and um, play him, and so we want to put you on injured reserve. And I said, that's fine. I have no problem with that, but um, I'd like to extend my contract. Can you give me a couple more years? And they decided not to do that. They decided to, to waive me. And uh, and then they tried to resign me. It was kind of a funny thing how that works. But uh, they waved me and they said, "Hey, go you know go home or do what you want." So I end up coming back to Utah. And at that time, I tried to get into coaching with with Jerry Pym. Jerry Pym at the time was at Utah, and he he saw that I got waved and he called me. I went to his office and he said, "Hey, I'd really like to have you be one of my assistant coaches. I got a coach who's going to leave leave and get another job." And so. I was quite interested in that, 
But he said to me, he said, Judd, I'm in right now, I'm in, in a situation I might take another job, a Santa Barbara job. And he said, I've asked for the moon and I probably won't get it, so I probably won't take it. And people don't realize he asked for a yacht and he asked for a lot of other things. And uh, dang it, he got it. They offered it, he gave it to him. And so he called me and he said, they offered me that. Would you be willing to come to Santa Barbara? And I said, you know, right now I'm either going to go back and try out for the NBA or I'm going to just get on with my life. And uh, so I sat down with my sweet wife and we talked and I had chances to go try out again or go overseas. And people don't realize unless you're the star player, your life's in a fishbowl, you know, and, you know, Bronson Kafusi probably knows a little bit how it feels and Tanner, Tanner, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of other athletes like Michael Smith probably was one of them too. And, and you had, you know, Brandon Davies and you've got, there's a lot of guys that have opportunities and they wonder why they don't keep playing the NBA. It's, it's tough because uh, you don't know where you're going to be in that. And so we decided to, I had one class to graduate. It was crazy. One class. And uh, so I went back and finished that. And then I kind of got into some business with some friends and and then for about three or four years. And then that's when Coach Majerist ended up calling me. But during that three or four years, it was funny. The Utah Jazz had a pro league, a summer league. And people probably remember this. Was this, this one they did at East High School? Correct. Yeah. And they had, they had BYU had a team and yeah. Utah had a team and Weber State had a team and then the Jazz had a team. And uh, we ended up winning it twice. The Utah team. Now, we had a pretty good team. Vrains, Chambers, Pace Mannion, myself. I mean, we had a nice team. And BYU had a really good team. Durant, yeah. Ainge, you know, uh, Robertson. So, but we played the Jazz a lot. And there was a guy named Dale Curry that the Jazz drafted. And, um, you know, a couple of games, I, I kind of dominated him. And so I had some NBA teams call me and said, you want to come play? But... I just felt like, hey, you know, at that time, I just felt like I needed to move on with my life. And so that's that was kind of it. Your time with Rick Majerus at Utah uh, could be a whole other show for how much yeah, we could talk be. about. Yeah. But if you had to distill down your time as an assistant with Rick over those years, what's the primary impression uh, with which you were left? Those 10 years, we had some of the best guys in the world to coach. You know, they were great players. And they, they did what you're supposed to do, but every one of those guys were that we recruited during that period of time were just great young men. You're you're ready to make a move, it sounds like, from Utah. And yeah. how does the opportunity with Steve Cleveland and the BYU basketball program open up at that point for you? Well, you know, I knew Coach Cleveland because of the days he coached at Fresno and and he we had some players that we recruited from him. And then, of course, when, when the job was open here at BYU, he applied and I applied. And I think the two of us were the last two standing. And they decided to go with Coach Cleveland, which was a great hire. Um, and so my relationship was pretty close to him. And so after, I think it might have been two years that he was here, I just got to a point where I, I just needed to move on. Um, Rick was becoming a little harder to deal with. And uh, so I, call, I called Coach Cleveland up, and I said, Coach, I, I don't know if what you have down here, but I'd be interested in coming down and helping your program. And this is the kind of guy Coach Cleveland is. Here's a guy that wanted to get the job, and he, he put BYU first, and he thought this would help the program to have me down here. And so he goes, Judd, let me make a few phone calls, and I'll get back to you. And he calls me back and he said, there's a new position that's coming out. It's called the director of ops. And we'd like to have you come down and do that. And uh, President Bateman was fine with that. And Vice President Skousen was, was, was fine with it. And so um, they, made a, they made a spot. And kind of what my responsibility, Greg, was, and you kind of knew it because you were around, around you a lot, yeah. was to coach both men and women. Um, be part of it. And I traveled with the men, but I was with the women's practices. And uh, so I did that for two years. And then um, the opportunity came that uh, at the time, BYU had two athletic departments, a, a women's and a men's. Right. At that time, Elaine Michaelis decided to hire me as the, as a women's coach. And, 
You know, I have a picture in my office with Coach Cleveland and me, and every day I look at it, and I look at it and I say, if it wasn't for him and Elaine Michaels, I probably never would have been here. And those are two people that I truly love and respect because they gave me the opportunity to be here. Did I think I was going to be here for as long as I've been here? Heck no. I thought I'd be here a couple of years and move there, but I've enjoyed it so much, and I've been so fortunate to to coach great players myself, but also with administration and everything part of BYU. Um, it's it's it, it's been a great move for me. You were a lifetime Ute, and here you are nearing the end of your second decade at BYU, starting <laughs> your 18th season as the head coach of the women's basketball program. And I, I just think of you as a Cougar now, and yet you have that entire history somewhere else. It's pretty unique that you would have two strong identities for as long as you've had. You know, a lot of people have brought that up to me, and I really haven't thought much about it. But, yeah, I spent my whole life, seemed like, at Utah. And now it's this is number 20 years for me because, the, you know, 18 years as a women's coach, yep. but two years with the men. And, yep. and it's like – here I am, kind of in two spots, and and I'm probably the best one who knows what every everybody feels because I've been involved in it. And but you know, President Samuelson had a little part of it. You know, he was at Utah, and then he came down here, and uh, Kyle Whittingham kind of a little bit different. He came here and went to Utah, and so there's been there's been uh, a lot of and Kalani's crossed yeah, over back right. and forth. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. there's been more than people realize. You know, uh, Mike Dunn. You know, he yeah. has now done. It's funny. He asked me when he came here. He said, <laughs> "He goes, what did you do with the Utah stuff?" I said, "I gave love to my family, and I and I and, and I, I just kind of gave it away to everybody." And but it's it's just been a great opportunity for me, and I've loved every minute of it. And and uh, you know, BYU has been very very good to me. In the minute we have left, uh, your outlook for the 2018-19 women's basketball team. Well, I have 12 underclassmen which you try not to do that as a coach, but with some transfers and some other things, it kind of happened. Um, but I have I have a nucleus of players that played a lot of minutes that it will help us, you know, with Brenda Chase and Sarah Hampson. And How's the rehab coming? She's coming along very, very well. She's now running and doing some things, and uh, we're hoping that she'll be back by the 1st of December. That's kind of was our goal. Um, Chalet has really come on and playing very, very well. And, you know, Jasmine um, is a senior, our only senior. Um, she She's playing, you know, it's for how this works. Those seniors that light just finally switches on, and they start playing really well. And we have a lot of depth, and um, I think our freshman group is very, very good. You're gonna, a lot of people are going to be surprised how, how good they are. And we had a great opportunity, Greg, to go overseas and take – you know, two weeks over there, and I think I, they, they gave us a good start. So we're excited uh, for our season. We we feel we we got a great team if we can put it all together. Well, I don't know that there could be another coach in NCAA women's basketball with the kind of background you have. The girls are lucky to have you. BYU's lucky to have you. I'm happy to know you for as long as I have, and it's just great being around you, and I'm so thankful that you made time to come on in. Well, I really appreciate be on the show because it gives us a little exposure you know we're looking for that all the time and we thank you and for all you do for for BYU and it's been a really pleasure being here tonight all right that is BYU women's basketball head coach Jeff Judkins he and the Cougars hosting UC Riverside this Friday night five o'clock at the Marriott Center in the Cougs regular season opener you can watch that game on BYU TV and by the way Michael Dunn you mentioned is our boss here at BYU Broadcasting and he he was at Utah before he came down here all right all right coming up next former BYU and NFL punter and current athletics administrator Lee Johnson joining me in our catching up with the Cougars segment presented by BYU alumni as Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel continues right here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143 and 107.9 FM. You're listening to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. It is time now for our Catching Up with the Cougars segment brought to you by BYU alumni. 
Want to help BYU students but don't know how? You can with BYU Alumni Chapters. Find the chapter that fits you at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. And tonight, we are catching up with a member of the 1984 National Championship team here at BYU and one of the best special teamers in Cougar football history. He's Lee Johnson. Once upon a time, they called him Thunderfoot. And when he punted, that foot had no shoe or sock on it. He did wear a shoe when he place kicked, and he also did that for BYU as a starter in both disciplines during the 1983 and 1984 seasons and before that. In 1985, he was drafted by the Houston Oilers, and for the next 18 seasons, he got paid to play and punt in the National Football League. After retirement and life in private enterprise, Lee has returned to BYU as an athletics administrator, and Lee Johnson joins me now behind the mic. Hey, Lee. Hey, Gregory. How are you, buddy? Very well. Good to see you. I see a lot of you, but good to have you in this this setting. Yeah, this is great. So uh, when the Houston Oilers drafted you, they were drafting the hometown guy. You were were from the Houston area. I was. Yeah, the Woodlands, North Houston. Been there. I was in Dallas, and then I moved to Houston my junior and senior year. And here's the funny thing. The Houston Gamblers, the USFL, drafted me as well. I don't know if you knew that. So I was drafted by two Houston teams. There was and not I much, chose the NFL. Was there, was there much of a choice to make there? No, no. no. Well, Steve went to the USFL, yeah. so I was thinking I considered it, but uh, yeah, no, it was. Yeah, I went the other way. And he'd gone the year before to the LA Express. That's right. So, what sports did you play as a kid, and when did you know that uh, you had a skill uh, for kicking? Soccer was my sport all growing up. I knew I had a skill kicking when I moved from when I moved to Houston from Dallas and I met, I had a soccer player. And when I moved to Houston, there were no soccer teams. I had nowhere to go, nothing to do. And this was as a, as a 15 year old. And I hooked up with some buddies at uh, McCullough high school and I was kicking the ball around. They said, man, you ought to come out. You ought to come out and try to kick. So that next day, this is football we're talking about. This is football. Yeah. Yeah, I was running track. I was on the track team. And this next day, my buddies who I had gotten to be friends with came up to me and said, come show the coach how you can kick. So I went out (laughs) And uh, I kicked a 50-yard field goal off the ground in high school my junior year. And the next day, I was in full pads, and I had no idea how to put pads on. I was lost. I mean, it was really weird. Were you Ziggy Ansel lost? I was, I was that lost. <laughs> I had no idea. I like football. I, didn't, I was a soccer player. Soccer players do not like football players. And you, did, and you still did world. not find a team to play for in Houston? Like, you didn't get a team. Like, you didn't end up playing. Like, there's nothing for you. In Houston? Yeah. yeah no. Soccer-wise? Yeah. No. We did. My, the next year, my senior year, we started a club team. Okay. So I did play my senior year. So you did have some year. soccer yeah. to play finally. Yeah. But that was all wrapped up in football at that time. So, Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it, I, I presume at high school, you did you did both punting and place kicking? High school did both yeah. punting and place kicking. The S, remember the game, the A&M game out of Rice? It was 79. That might have been my senior year. BYU came down to play Rice, or excuse me, play A&M at Rice Stadium. And they brought down a coach to uh, scout me in that hmm. game because I wanted to walk or play at BYU. And I had a terrible game, an awful game. Gary Zahner at the time was the coach. And he uh, went back to Lavelle and said, ah, the guy's... Well, what's an awful game for you? Um, I missed three field goals. <laughs> I, I always had good kickoffs, but I missed three field goals. My punts were just okay. But Zahner went back to Lavelle and said, ah, this guy's probably not going to cut it. So they didn't offer me. I ended up having to walk on that year 80, in 1980, when I came, I walked on as one of 13 kickers. Um, that they brought in. Kind of weird. You were a, a kickoff guy and a backup place kicker probably on the Miracle Bowl team of 1980. Is yeah. that fair uh-huh. to say? Is, yeah. is that accurate? That's okay. accurate. Yeah. Uh, BYU these days uh, plays very few teams that has a guy who does both punting and place kicking. Yeah. But back then that was kind of what almost not everyone, but most everyone did. Like you, you, you had to do them both. Yeah, you did. A lot of guys did do that. And um, yeah, they did. They saved a spot. And, and well, of course in the NFL, they loved the fact that I could punt, kick off, and hold and I was also the backup field goal kicker, so they loved that. NFL, I've never seen an NFL team actually do have one guy do both. No, but, but at the high school and college level, it's very they, common. Yeah, they it do. was back it then, is. at least. Back then, and it, yeah, less now, though. Less now. Yeah. Most punters in the NFL kick off, though. A lot of the punters do kick off. Which did you enjoy more, the punting or the place kicking? Um, punting. I like to punt. Well, I like pl- field goal kicking better, but the pressure, oh my gosh, is so different. To have to score Obviously, points. To score points, to win games, and... I never had to win a game. Michigan was the closest time I had to really do a kick that was – I never I've never in all my years as a kicker had to win a game. It was really – of course, we dominated back then. We, yeah. we won every game by a lot. So And a lot of times the only thing keeping you out of certain record books for punting was you didn't punt enough. Yeah, my junior year, <laughs> we, I led the nation, and I didn't qualify. 20 – was it 24, 24 punts? 24 punts, I yeah. Needed, yeah, I needed 3.4 a game, which was within 10, 30, 34 punts. Yeah, darn the BYU offense. I know. I know. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> know. So uh, did you always want to go to BYU? I grew up in Texas. Um, I, I did want to stay at Texas. I wasn't uh, – my dad went to BYU, 
And he had mentioned the idea of going to BYU. And I said, Dad, I want to stick around Texas. Let me try to go to, to uh, A&M or the Longhorns or, or SMU at the time. I, tr- I wanted to walk on SMU. And when none of that worked out, the old Floyd Taylor, um, a guy who was the business manager back then, who uh, Mike King eventually became that. I'm not sure who it is now. Anyway, Floyd Taylor helped me get a walk-on at BYU. I was denied my admission, and the next day I was accepted. So both times I was denied, and then I was accepted. So I think Floyd Taylor got a hold of someone and said, no, this guy's coming to BYU. And it was a great story, actually, the way I got to BYU. Did the Texas schools have interest in you? or Not really. I was um, not a great high school player. Strong. Always had a strong leg, kick touchbacks, and just was a big-legged guy, but not a lot of experience. And at the time, SMU was great. They were really good. Texas was okay, and they did have all the legendary uh, punters and kickers. So I, I just it wasn't a fit for me. Interesting that uh, your first season at BYU, that Miracle Bowl, ends up against SMU. I know. I know. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, Ron Meyer. Oh, man. What Crazy. happened in the 1981 season uh, there? How was Richard? Did you, did you play it? Did you get a game in at all? Or no. Did you see no, any I didn't have it back then. No, I redshirted my junior, my sophomore year, which is kind of weird. It was tough. Redshirting's not easy. But at the time, they had Clay Brown, Mike Meese, and Kurt Gunther were still here. Mm-hmm. So it worked out well. And I ended up actually my sophomore year, which was my third year, um, those guys were still here. So I only played two years. But you, a, were, but, a, you, but you were the primary kickoff guy, though, in your sophomore year, though, in 82, though. After yes. your redshirt year, you were the kickoff right. guy. My freshman year and my sophomore redshirt year, was, I was the primary kickoff guy. But then 83 and 84, you're now the starting place kicker and punter for BYU. So you talk about only all. playing two years. Those were the main years for you as you were doing it all, basically. Yeah, yeah doing it all. Yeah. Those were great years. They were great years, and I was following Mike Meese and Clay Brown. who was Clay was an All-American, and Mike Meese was actually a very good punter. Gunther had a great year, great career as well. So We yeah. should probably note here that Jim McMahon would also punt. Yeah, he did. I know. He <laughs> wanted to punt. So, but everyone wants to punt. Everyone wants to be a punter and a kicker. But they, it's funny to watch guys do that because, I mean, I can throw, right? I can throw like any normal guy can throw. But you watch a guy kick who's supposed to be a really good athlete, and it's like, dude, you're not an athlete. <laughs> you think you are, but no. It's it's funny to watch guys kick. And Jimmy Mack could actually uh, – could, he could boot it. He could. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy Mack did have some uh, some skills. You uh, were known uh, as a barefoot punter. When did you start doing that? Right before I came to BYU – I was out with my dad at my old high school field in the summer of uh, 80, and I launched a couple balls, and I, I was like, Dad, man, this is amazing. I am killing the ball. Who introduced you to the, uh, to the idea of doing this? Texas kickers back then did kick barefoot. Russell Slavin, Tony Franklin were two of the Texas guys. One was A&M, one was Texas, and they both kicked barefooted, and I got the idea from that. And on a warm, hot day in, in Houston, and you're, you're you know hitting 70-yard balls, and I came here as a freshman, and I was – it was – it's amazing how far the ball goes. And I tried it in the NFL for three years, and it didn't work. It was – one was the – I had a problem when the, when, the, when the ground got wet, my foot would slip. And mm. it was – I was unable to really perform. And we never rained here, so I didn't realize that. When I got to Cleveland and Houston and when it rained all the time, I realized, man, this is not going to work. My career – is going to be on hold until I put my shoe on. Don't put question. my shoe on. Uh, was cold ever an issue for you that way? You know, no. I played in Cleveland and I played in Cincinnati, all with the. Uh, no, I mean I think with I the barefoot how. part. Yeah, of I'm trying to yeah. think how I did that because there were games where it was minus twenty. Yeah, you know you're all jacked up. You're you're just going out there real quick. You come back and you put your little booty on, but you don't you don't feel anything. Dumb question number up. two. Then uh, if you if you've been used to kicking or punting, that is with a, with a shoe and a sock on, and they're pretty heavy duty shoes, then you have nothing. Is there not some pain involved there? There's no. Well, you got to build a callus. So yeah, there was pain. If I did it now, it would hurt. But I think I spent so much time doing it that you do build a a little callus on your on your foot, and it's it's kind of weird. I always say, why? What makes a difference? Well, take a ball, drop it, and have it land on shag carpet, and then have it land on concrete, and you'll get a bigger response. It's a hitting a hard surface, and it truly it's a it's a ten to fifteen yard difference. But you don't kit. It's not quite as consistent because you don't have the biggest surface area as a shoe. Mm-hmm. So I, I've done all. You can tell I've done all. Right, my but it's anim- more solid surface yeah, connecting. Yeah, with you, is what you're saying. It was good. I liked it. I love kicking barefooted. But it was it was a novelty. I was Lee Johnson, the barefooted kicker. Your your punt record, uh, well records. Uh, one of them I'll talk about. You had an 80 yard kick one time. I did. Now it got broken a few years ago by Scott Arlano yeah. by, by one yard. I know. So the 80 yard punt was broken by Scott's 81. The 80 yard punt happened uh, in Laramie. And Laramie. How did, the, how, how, how did you get 80 that we day? We were backed up, and this is why I love Scott Arlano, but this is why <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still claim it. Mine was in the air, and it went out of bounds. It would have been about 88. <laughs> but I, so this was, no, this was no bounce and roll? No, no, this wasn't a bounce and roll. I'd like to see a film on that. 
my mind tells me it's not a bounce and roll, but it was the same game that Wyoming put their brand new scoreboard up, and I kicked the PAT and knocked the lights out, and I loved it. <laughs> it was epic. <laughs> Literally? Literally. You, uh, you, you hit 50 yarders at, at BYU, right? Yeah. Not you, too often, though. We didn't kick many field goals. I was 13 or 7. I don't think. I think I had one. I, don't, I can't even you remember. Two. You two. had two. Did I have two? In 1983, you had two 50-yarders. Wow. 50-yarders or longer. Guess how long it's been since BYU last – the current – guess how long it's been since BYU last kicked a 50-yard field goal, 50 or longer. Oh, man. Owen Potchman would be my guy. It's, um, it uh, was 2006, Jared McLaughlin. Jared McLaughlin? In 2006. He popped a 50-yarder. Yeah. A couple of that year. It's been 12 years plus. Really? BYU has currently the third longest FBS drought of 50-yard field goals. That's not good. I don't like to hear that. So 2006, BYU, yeah. 2003, New Mexico State, 2002, Northwestern. Those are the only other two schools that haven't had a 50-yard field goal for a longer time than BYU. That's got to change. It's got to change, right? Yeah. Now, Maybe I'll suit back up. What do you, you think? Know, you know a little bit about, <laughs> about the guy we've got now doing it. It's Skyler South. He's good. got a leg, right? He's solid. He's got plenty of leg. I'm, I was shocked he was short on that one at Boise. I, I texted Chad, asked if there was a headwind, and... He, he must not. Have, I haven't talked to him about it, but he must not have hit it well. But Skyler's capable of hitting a 52, 54. Justin Sorensen, mm-hmm. that dude had a cannon. He had a leg. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it seemed like once he got back from his mission, it never quite clicked the same way as it uh, you know, he was a power lifter. He loved to lift. And he was always injured. And it was uh, once he finally quit lifting and Bronco kind of stepped back a little bit and let him just be a kicker, I think that was his senior year. I think he had his best year. He had a he had a rough go. He had a couple guys getting in his ear. One thing about a kicker, you don't want to get in there. You don't want to get in our ears. Just kind of leave. Let it you be. do your thing. Yeah. Uh, Lee's still in the BYU record book in a couple of categories. Uh, career punt average, minimum of eighty punts. So so punt average for the career forty six point nine. That record still belongs to you. That's wow. your, that's your college punting average record. Yeah. And then the season. Uh, with a minimum of forty punts, so again, you you know there there was a year where you didn't punt enough. Yeah, but in nineteen eighty three, uh, the season average of fifty point six is still a BYU record. Fifty point six. Yeah, wow. That was back in the day. The Reggie Roby, remember him? Yes, Iowa guy. We were going head uh, head on, and he he ended up punting with the Dolphins forever, did. ever, didn't he? He died. Yeah, yeah he died of sleep apnea. He died. Uh, I'm not sure when. Maybe fifteen, twenty years ago. Hmm. He died. Yeah, great uh, punter though. Favorite BYU playing memories. Oh. <sighs> Holiday Bowl. Always a Holiday Bowl. Those memories were great. Georgia, playing at Georgia. I was a red shirt, but I traveled. And just being on the field with Herschel and, and the crew and between the hedges, that was completely epic. Tom Homo taking a pick six. Tom taking a pick six. <laughs> Those are great memories. Uh, every Holiday Bowl. As SMU was mind-blowing. Uh, the last college game you played was a Holiday Bowl, yeah. right, for the national championship, right? Yeah, Michigan. That was a great game, too. How could I forget that one? My mind is so bad. I don't know what's wrong. CTE or something's <laughs> kicking in. But, yeah, that was a big game. That was fun. It is break time. I'm behind the mic. When we come back, uh, Lee Johnson's NFL career and how it is he compiled an NFL career passer rating of 131.9. <laughs> As Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel continues, we're brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Welcome back to Behind the Mic, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Here's your host, Greg Rubel. And continuing our conversation now with former BYU and NFL kicker and punter Lee Johnson. After a national championship season at BYU in 1984, Lee, you were in the NFL draft and a high pick of the Houston Oilers and the Houston Gamblers, as you mentioned. Um, what do you look back on as your official introduction to the NFL, the moment where it hit you that there was a difference now between Provo and the league. <laughs> <laughs> when I went into the Oilers locker room and guys were smoking cigarettes <laughs> before practice, that was when I realized this is really different. The Oilers at the time were, they had an old team. They had a bunch of guys that were 10, 12, 14-year vets, and they were old, honorary codgers. And they lived hard lives. And it was really interesting to be there and just be a part of it. And guys growing up, obviously, in Houston or Texas, where you knew a lot of the names. And um, anyway, that was, that was it. That was, I realized, oh, boy, this is big boy stuff. How, how were punters treated generally? How were you treated in your locker rooms? Uh, back then, it was, I'm not going to say abusive, but you were, 
the something kicker, and it started with an F typically. And this is in the NFL. It, you know, they didn't, I think things are very different now. People really realize the, the, what the kickers do and the role they play, and punters as well, and they give them a lot more respect. Back then, in my early days, we were just, uh, we were just in the way, really. Hmm. Kickers were just in the way. But, you know, you get a little bit as of As good as you were and as an important player as you are, that's – They just – yeah. They, kickers didn't get a whole lot of respect. But now they do. Things are very different. This I'm talking NFL now more than college. So I, I hinted at it before the break. Um, over your 18-year NFL tenure, you went five for six passing for 37 yards and two touchdowns. Hmm. You remember all six of those passes? No. no. I, do. I remember. <laughs> remember the touchdowns? Yeah, the, the passes were shoveled. The, the, uh, two of those touchdowns were the when I'm, I'm a holder, and I catch it, put it down like I'm going to hold it, and then I flick it to the tight end coming around. But the one that really stood out was a, uh, a field goal. It was when I was at the Pats, and we had, guy, we had a guy who was supposed to be on the end kind of work his way to the sidelines and pretend like he's out of bounds, and he kind of hovered there, and I'm, I'm looking over there. Okay, is it on? Is it on? And that's the worst part about it because you've got a corner who's kind of – you can tell he's kind of – and it was on. So I caught it, stood up, and threw a ball in a windy day, probably 25, almost 30 yards, and I completed it, and it was a bullet, and I was pumped. I felt pretty good. You've mentioned the holder responsibilities. Yeah. During, were you holding the entire time? I did, time? all my career, yeah. And, and, and that doesn't get enough attention, too. You talk about you know maybe not respecting the special teams guys enough. A holder doesn't get uh, any yeah. attention no, unless you mess up. Exactly. And I did that a few different times. Matter of fact, the reason why I think I ended up being released by the the Patriots, we were playing at Buffalo in a blizzard, and it was the last play of the game to win it, and I fumbled the snap. It was ice cold. I fumbled the snap, sent us into overtime, and it was minus 30, and I was hated by all. And then in overtime, we go to win the game with a field goal, and I catch it. We win the game, but I was not... I was really scared. That was the most scared I've ever been playing football. Was as a holder? As a holder in that particular in game that in particular. a blizzard with cold hands, no gloves, yeah. and I had muffed had the last just, snap. Yeah. yeah. You went three seasons Houston, two seasons Cleveland, 11 seasons Cincinnati, and that's your Super Bowl team, right? That's my Super Bowl team. Yeah. Uh, then two and a half with New England, maybe a half season with Minnesota, and then a short stint with the Eagles to, to end it up. Yeah. Um, and I ask this of, of most of my guests that have the uh, pro career, uh, when did you know it was time? To be done? Yep. It, it wasn't time to be done. They told me I was done. I had in my – it was in the, the, the Eagles NFC Championship game. I was 40 years old in my 18th year, and I had a, a moment. It's a windy day kicking – on a pooch punt and I was back there and I felt relaxed for the first time in my 18 years where I felt like I could, before I used to, I mean, I'm, I'm a nervous player. I'm not necessarily the guy that wants the ball in the free throw line. I don't want the ball at the end of the game typically. And I was never, I was never a, a comfortable player. And I had hit a moment in that game where I was like, wow, this is really weird. I've arrived. It's like a moment of Zen. All yeah, of it was total. And I was like this, now I can control. I'm not worried about the win. I'm not worried about the rush. I'm not worried. I can control what I'm going to do and I'm going to own it. And I had – it was really unfortunate. That was my, my last game. Well, I did come back the next year and play a couple preseason games, and I was really, really good. But Andy wanted – Andy Reid wanted to just stick with the other guy. But it was a moment that I realized, why couldn't I have been this way the previous the 17 time. years? Oh, yeah. I would have been all pro 10 years in a row. I felt – So you discovered the secret at the end. It was just – yeah, I did at the end. It was kind of a bummer. I really wanted – I had so much more. I did. I was as strong as I'd always been. But it was just one of those deals where you release late in camp – I'm in my 18th year, so I'm more expensive. And, you know, you're just you're older than the, a lot of coaches. So. But, the agent, but the agent's making calls, right? You're trying to still find something at yeah, that point? Well, I didn't just, have an agent. It was, it was tough. I, so I so you were knocking your own doors, at basically. At the time, I was, yeah, I was knocking my own doors. And nothing was up. Nothing was available. Andy was going to bring me back. Had the guy they, they kept not played well. And he had a nice, uh, nice year that year. While you were punting, uh, while you were a pro, you were you were also already dabbling in business. Like you had yeah. something going, didn't you? Yeah. So when yeah. you when you quit, you were you were already into. Something. I always did stocks. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of funny. Yeah, it was always uh, yeah into stocks, and Belichick knew it, and I'm sure that played a role against me. <laughs> that he was aware that during my off time, you had I was stuff doing going stocks. on in the locker mm. room. Yeah, I mean it was. I can either sit around and and watch videos, or I can sit around and do my stocks because we had a lot of free time. I have two minutes left with you. In that time, I, w- I want to quickly uh, have you chat about your family, uh, where everyone is, and then what you're currently doing with, B- with BYU as an administrator. Absolutely. I've got seven kids. I've got four girls that are married. 
got six grandkids. I've got three boys, uh, 124, 120, 117. He's a senior. Um, everything's great. Everyone's healthy. My wife's great. She's been, uh, she's been amazing. She had a little bit of surgery this year, the last six months, so we've had some crazy stuff at home. But she's feeling much better now. Uh, we're going to BYU in development with the great Chad Lewis, Robbie Bosco. So when you say development, what does that really mean to people? We are fundraisers. We work with all 21 sports at BYU. We work with all of our donors, our amazing donors, who help fund the programs at Brigham Young University. And it's amazing. It's a great opportunity, great experience. How are things? Uh, how are things going right now in 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 your business that way? They're good. They're, yeah, they're good. We we track with the success of football a lot of mm-hmm. times. So we might be a little bit down this year, but we had a great year last year, and uh, so we're probably going to be a little bit down this year. But you would expect that given how well we did last year, and also we're just coming off uh, a rough season. So, but we have great donors. They they oversee overlook that a lot of times, and they realize we need funds to continue the program and be the program. And BYU needs uh, two wins. To earn a, a 13th game here this Man, year. we got to do it, you guys. We've got to do it. It's going to happen. Are you going feel to, good. Are you going to UMass? I'm not going to UMass, but Chad is. He'll be going okay. out with some donors. And, and, you, and you, you, you do hit the road some. I do. Yeah. All, all the way games. Usually. Yeah. We, yeah. usually we take donors out there. So this week we don't have any, so I don't have any, but Chad's going to we'll, we'll, we'll try and bring a win back for you one Please. way or the other here. Please Big do. Big game. Yeah, and, and there's no looking past UMass. I know that uh, people say, ah, yeah, but uh, they, they've got a very potent offense. They can score. You saw what the receiver did. In, uh, Andy Isabella did this past no, weekend. Tell me, he had three hundred three receiving yards in in, the, no in, in their win on Saturday. Three hundred three in a game. Oh man! Yeah. Yeah, they, they, I they, did they, see he had five hundred forty yards passing. Right? Is that correct? They Something did like that. Yeah, and they did seven seventy seven in total offense. They can put up some numbers. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, good to have you in. Thanks for coming Thanks in tonight for and, it, and chatting. It went really quick. We'll do That's it again good. sometime. All right, I'd that was to. our Catching Up with the Cougars segment brought to you by BYU Alumni. BYU Alumni Chapters, helping students in need and spread the influence of the Y around the world. Stay connected for good and find your chapter at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. That was the great Lee Johnson. We're back to wrap up tonight's show right after this. Well, thanks for joining us behind the mic on this Wednesday, November 7th. Thanks to my guests this evening, BYU women's basketball head coach Jeff Judkins and former BYU place kicker and punter, NFL vet and current BYU athletics administrator Lee Johnson. Next week, I'll be joined by BYU men's basketball head coach Dave Rose for the entire hour. Hope you can join us for that conversation. Should be fun. Thanks also tonight to coordinating producer Terry South with production assistance from Cole Wissinger. Appreciation as well to intern Lindsay Peterson. My name is Greg Grubel. Thanking you for tuning in to Behind the Mic. We'll talk to you next Wednesday, 8 o'clock Eastern, 6 o'clock Mountain Time, right here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYU and the BYU Radio app. And remember to listen to the Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel podcast or hit the archives at byuradio.org under the show's page. Till next Wednesday, good night. You have been listening to Behind the Mic with the voice of the Cougars, Greg Rubel. Brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Listen to the podcast at byuradio.org.